The Athletic. Totally football show. Today, as the World Cup opener accelerates towards us, we focus on the shifting turns of the Premier League. Match day two has Stevie G against Super Frankie. Will it also feature Brentford beating Man United 8-0? Will it see City's short squad and Bournemouth's tall strikers cause an upset at the Etihad? And how will Fulham fare with a large opponent too at Wolves? All that sort of thing and more in this Totally Football Show. Hello there, listener. Thank you so much for making Totally Football Show your week two preview podcast of choice. It's Thursday, the 11th of August right now. And here with us on the Totally, we've got Duncan Alexander, Michael Cox and Jay Harris. Hello, everyone. Hello. 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 Mm. Nice. Hey, Jay. You must be excited about the weekend and Brentford Man United. It's going to be 8-0, apparently. <laughs> no, I certainly am. I even remember when the fixture list first came out, kind of penciling this in. Ooh. And then obviously a certain individual switched teams in the in the aftermath of that. And it's only kind of added to the spice of that game. Right. Well, Duncan was confidently predicting that 8-0 will be the scoreline for the home side. This was Tuesday night in Manchester. You, you, Duncan was a little bit showing out because there was a crowd watching. <laughs> uh, but we'll, we'll get into a, a more detailed analysis must be realistic analysis of the game very, very shortly. On the subject of live shows, many, many thanks to everyone who came along to the Lowry Theatre on Tuesday. We had a great time. I hope you did too. We will have another uh, live show on the 20th of November. This one will be at the Leicester Square Theatre. Of course, that's just ahead of the World Cup. I'm not sure. Is that still ahead of the World Cup? Halfway through the World Cup. It probably will be by then. (laughs) (laughs) So the opening day was scheduled for the... Uh, Monday the 21st of November and just over 100 days before the tournament they're planning to to move it to the the Sunday you may I'm sure you've read the story if you haven't it's because Qatar wanted to have the opening ceremony before their game but they are the third fixture in that uh, what was it going to be the, the first day of the tournament on the, the 21st so they've decided well if we just move our game to the previous day and have the ceremony before that bingo and incredibly having had 12 years to plan all this FIFA are set to wave this through just 100 days before the whole thing actually begins. Quite remarkable. The strangest thing is that when the draw was made, the assumption was that Qatar-Ecuador was going to be the opening game. They subsequently decided, FIFA subsequently decided to switch that game with the Netherlands against Senegal, almost deliberately making that the first game. So if they wanted to have Qatar as the opening game, they could have done so on the original day. Why they've Mm. brought it forward a day, like you say, at such short notice... I think it's terrible. And there'll be a lot of people who have arranged their travel and their accommodation around this. I mean, particularly because of the nature of Qatar and accommodation is so difficult to get. People are leaving it quite fine before they arrive in the country just because there isn't that many places to stay. Mm. So, I mean, it's it's far from the worst thing about this World Cup. It's probably not in the top 100, but it does seem one of the most bizarre. <laughs> but it's also the little knock-on effects as well. Like, um, you know, all the 100 days of the World Cup starts content, all war planners <laughs> have probably been printed. It It's going to have... I mean, as Mike says, it's not a major issue in the grand scheme of things, but it is bizarre that they could you know, organise it like a sort of power league um, situation. Mm. I imagine that Ecuador's manager and Qatar's manager possibly too are, are less than 
delighted to discover that how many days preparation do they have after the, the major league ceases? Is it six or seven bef- between league football ceasing and the World Cup starting? Well, it's a day less for those two teams now, but just uh, remarkable. It still has to be ratified by FIFA, but uh, I think the probability is that it will go through. Crikey. Well, anyway, 101 days now as it stands until that gets underway but a lot less until match day two of the Premier League, which is what we're here to discuss. Uh, Let's check on the fixtures. All right, kicking things off, it's Aston Villa against Everton. Gerrard against Lampard, Spider-Man memes at the ready as the two famously compatible underfire former midfield legends get their first meeting as managers. Saturday, Saints leads, rare sound to that sentence, Uh, Arsenal take on Leicester, Brighton, take on Newcastle, which might be the furthest flung fixture this season. We'll check on that. Uh, There'll also certainly be the most one-sided fixture in Premier League history, which is Bournemouth against Man City. We'll touch on City's record in that soon enough. It's good. Wolves face Fulham and tea time. There's that Brentford-Man United game. Sunday, first Premier League game at the City Ground in 23 years. Sees Nottingham Forest host West Ham. At 4.30, it's Chelsea Spurs. And then on Monday, Liverpool Palace. Where do you want to begin? Chelsea Spurs, then. All right, then. Bingo. Sold to the man who said Chelsea Spurs. Uh, Well, Michael, I'm going to call this a big test of Spurs' new status as best of the rest favourites. Although I note with interest that Spurs met Chelsea four times last season and lost all four of those matches without scoring a, a single goal. Are the prospects different this time? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a good mood around Tottenham. I think they've had a very impressive summer, bringing in lots of very good players. Um, and I thought their opening day performance was pretty good, recovering from a setback of going behind against Southampton. They just seem to have more options than I can remember Tottenham having for a very long time. They're a very good side under Pochettino, but he pretty much knew the starting eleven, and there wasn't that much tactical variety to come from the bench. Whereas at the moment, to bring in Richarlison, well, I don't think there's necessarily an obvious position in, for him in the side. It shows, yeah, that they're looking much more formidable. So I mm. think this is a really interesting game. And I'm always a little bit wary of phrases like making a statement and laying down a marker. Because I think sometimes it's a bit meaningless. But I think a lot of people, myself included, have Tottenham down probably as third favourites for the title. And, and this time last year... I was saying I thought Chelsea had a really good chance of winning it with Lukaku coming in and they were going to really compete. So it does feel a little bit like, uh, I don't know, potential potential for changing the guard almost in terms of, yeah, the the, the best side in London and also the best side that might actually challenge the usual two for the title. Kane, Kulisevsky, Son, etc. Joined by Richarlison now as Spurs select their team for Stamford Bridge, where they'll be facing possibly that 100-year-old backline of Aspilicueta, Silva and Koulibaly. Tottenham, the top-scoring team since the turn of the year, I note. Which kind of stat do you dislike more, Michael? Calendar year stats or combined <laughs> age ones? <laughs> to be fair, the calendar year one's quite fun because I wouldn't have expected it to be Tottenham. But no, I just don't... I, combined age, you just... That's not how age works. You can't combine ages. Um, <laughs> I mean, you can... It only ever happens for Premier League defences or the Rolling Stones is the only two times you ever hear it. Um, but imagine if you heard it, but if you use that in normal conversation, if you said, oh, how old are your kids now? Oh, they've got a combined age of 27. People, people think you're mad. I'm going to start doing that. That's good. Well, 
no, I take your point, but were they to be performing a task uh, collectively, say, uh, I don't know, cleaning uh, chimney flues, <laughs> then then their combined age might have a relevancy. Your point the other night, and it's a fair one, is that combined age is, is just laziness because what you should then be doing is divide it by the number and provide an average age. But if you can accept average age, surely combined age is, is equally valid. I fear we're going to waste a lot of time with this. So let's move on then. <laughs> Duncan, what other light can you shed on this fixture? Um, I mean, everyone knows how good uh, Kuliszewski's been since he came to Tottenham. Um, you know, most assists in the Premier League in this calendar year, sorry. Um, but he's got nine in his first 19. Slightly curious that the only player to ever get to double figures in his first 20 is a quite unknown player. It's Brett em- well, not unknown, but unusual player. It's Brett Emerton doing it in 2003-04 for Blackburn. Mm. So he can... He can upset the Brett Emerton ultras by uh, assisting at Stamford Bridge this weekend. All right, not not by a long shot, though. The biggest fixture taking place this weekend on the west side of the capital, AJ Harris. Yeah, definitely. And as I kind of mentioned a minute ago, when the when the fixture list kind of came out, straight away I was looking at this game, second weekend in Eric Ten Hag's second match in the Premier League. And then obviously what's happened since is Christian Eriksen has left. And before we kind of dig into that, which I'm sure we will, I think it's important to point out every time Brentford played a top six team at home last year, it was a really special occasion. They mm. obviously had the 2-0 win over Arsenal, the 3 all draw with Liverpool. They um, had the 1-0 defeat to Chelsea where, you know, Chilwell comes out afterwards and said the, the final half an hour was like hell. And then even when they lost to Man United at home 3-1 in, in January, it's the infamous game where Ronaldo kind of threw his coat on the bench and Thomas Frank came out at full time saying... We absolutely destroyed Man United in the first half. So first and foremost, I've, I've my anticipation and excitement for this game is, is through the roof and I, I'm quite quite hopeful it's going to live up to that. Mm. First home game of the season, of course, as well. So, hey Jude on the PA, possibly Ericsson lining up for the opposition, etc. And rubbernecking possibilities galore as Man United turn up. One or two players pouting on the sidelines. We we shall see. Uh, Brentford post Ericsson, you saw them battle back at Leicester last Sunday with Joshua Silva capping off the display. And since then, they've added Mikel Damsgaard. That's now been announced. The signing video with a throbbing soundtrack and quite quite a well quite a pulsating jersey as well that the uh, Danish midfielder is sporting in that is that uh, which jersey is that is that their third kit or something yeah so they announced their third kit with him in it right. so it's qu- quite smooth mm, very nice alright are you excited about that the third kit or Mikkel Damsgaard <laughs> both <laughs> yeah the third kit's pretty cool no yeah super excited about Damsgaard obviously everybody knows him for that incredible free kick against England at, at Euro 2020 but not really much has kind of happened to him since so it's kind of important to point out um, he had knee surgery last October and uh, when the issue didn't clear, um, doctors ran some tests and it turns out that he has arthritis. So that's kind of why he's flown under the proverbial radar over the last year or so. Um, but obviously he's undergone quite like a thorough medical um, and now it seems as if he's you know fully recovered and can play again. I think he returned in April, played a few games for, for Sampdoria at the end of the season. But I mean, he's 22 years old, got so much potential, very typical Brentford signing, someone who they can kind of mould. I think he normally plays on the left, but Thomas Frank said that um, they see him as, a, as either an 8 or a 10 in the midfield. So I don't want to say he is Ericsson's heir because they're very different players, but I think that's kind of how they potentially see him being the creative fulcrum in the team. Duncan, as I say, the other night was predicting a big, big win here 
for Brentford in a game which they dominated, a fixture which they dominated to, to to some extent last season. No, as you were alluding to before, without necessarily getting the result. Michael, you're nodding at that. Yeah, no, I disagree. They they did dominate. <laughs> hence, hence the nodding, right? I mean, we should point out that the reason I was saying eight nil, which I'm not entirely sure will happen, um, was that there I was theorising that there's possibly a scenario where. Eric Ten Hag is sacked after two games and, you know, after losing at home last week and then an 8-0 at Brentford could become untenable. But, but I mean, on a more realistic note, United lost their last six uh, away games in the Premier League at the end of last season, which is not yeah. good. If they, if they lose this one, that'll be the first time since uh, the 1930s that they uh, have lost seven in a row in the league away from home. That was the season Man City won the league. Sounds familiar. Arsenal came third. Right. And Brentford came six, so right. it could be an omen. Also, widespread civic unrest and yeah. uh, people out in the streets. <laughs> yeah. uh, continent gearing up for war. Yeah, tick tick tick. Uh, United did do the double over Brentford last season, though, albeit with an asterisk over the fixture in West London. They have lost to further your stat, Man United, five of their last seven Premier League games, which is. Remarkable. Their only win in that time, though, was against, guess who? The Bees. Andrew Tate, no, not the fraudster. Andrew says, where do you see the big six in 10 years' time based on today? Andrew continues, does it change completely? Is the United in there now Newcastle? Will Aston Villa be in for Arsenal? Are West Ham the new Tottenham? Two of those probably know, continues Andrew. But it is a fascinating thing with the kind of shifting of the tectonic plates, especially financially in that. Ten years' time, Michael, who's going to be the top six or the big six? I think, yeah, I think there's a good chance Newcastle will be in there. Um, I do think West Ham on the rise as well. I was there last week and just seeing 62,000 people for a West Ham game is, is quite remarkable how much of a, a thing they're becoming. Um, but in all seriousness, I think the identity of the the big six might depend on what league they're playing in. I, I do think there is a possibility the Super League will come back and that might increase divisions between some clubs and others on a more literal basis than we've ever seen before. Very good point. The- the counterpoint to that, I guess, is that, you know, you go back 20 years, it was a big two, and then it was the big four, and now it's the big six. And as the Premier League sort of shifts to being the de facto Super League, then maybe it'll be a big eight or a big ten in, in 10 years' time. Wow. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say, I can't see the current six dropping out, but you can obviously definitely see a team like Newcastle break in, possibly even Leicester. But obviously, it just depends if they kind of get their act together and ever sign anybody ever again. Mm, unless they're a bit of a left-field chat there, Jay. Uh, but a nice one all the same. In the meantime, the only big eight for us this weekend possibly will come in Brentford's clash with Man United. The other game relevant to the top four race this weekend, Arsenal-Leicester. Oh, we just mentioned Leicester. Jay, you saw them last weekend. And curiously, them getting pegged back from 2-0 down to 2-2 two, two. has you uh, figuring them as a future titan of the uh, top division <laughs> I think what I would say from that game is that Leicester played pretty well in the first first 45 minutes probably the first hour Madison looked really good um, Tielemans looked pretty good but um, there's a reason why Thomas Frank was such an advocate for, for five substitutions which I think is probably slightly stranger with teams who are kind of in the bottom half of the Premier League table um, the way he just 
goes such gung-ho after any, any result. If they're losing or if they're drawing, he will always hunt, hunt a point or hunt for the three points. And, you know, he brought on all five subs, switched from a 4-3-3 to a 3-5-2 to a 3-4-3. And I think Rodgers just got completely outwitted in the tactical battle and, and kind of admitted it afterwards. Basically said, I took off a central midfielder, put on Pats and Dakar because I thought we'd kind of get more space on the counter-attack and it just, it just didn't work. So I'd expect him to be a little bit more clued up on what Mikel Arteta is going to do on, on Saturday. Brilliant. All right. Michael, are you confident about Arsenal getting two wins in a row to start the season? Yeah, I thought they played well against Palace. Um, certainly first half hour. I think they're much better than than last year, certainly on paper. And I mean, we talk so much about how teams improve through signings. But I think Arsenal, of all the teams in the league, probably have more room to grow just by existing players improving because they have the lowest or the youngest uh, average age, not combined age, lowest average age <laughs> in, uh, in the Premier League last season by, by quite a long way. So, yeah, I think there's a good chance that um, both Arsenal and Tottenham have improved from last season and hopefully the top of the table is a little bit tighter than it was last season. OK, well, loads more to come. We'll touch on the title race later on. Next up, all the drama that awaits at Villa Park. Hi, I'm Danny Kelly. You can join me, Jack Pitt-Brook, and the rest of the Athletics' frankly tremendous team of Tottenham writers twice a week throughout the new season for the View From The Lane podcast. It's the podcast that gives you everything you need to know about Spurs, as well as all the joy and pain of actually following them. Search for The View From The Lane everywhere you get your podcasts and listen ad-free on The Athletic. podcast spotify smart speaker and now ad free on the athletic this is the totally football show with james richardson yep that traveling star that sages have followed across the dusty continent has led them to villa park it hovers above the ground where saturday aston villa will face everton in what is yes the first ever managerial meeting of stephen gerrard and frank lampard who's the best manager out of these two michael uh, I think I'd have to say probably Paul Scholes of Oldham. Explain the joke for younger listeners. No, I, I'm sure everyone will get that. Everyone joke. knows that. <laughs> no, I, of the two, I must say I've been far more impressed with, with Gerald. I think what he did at Rangers was really impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, reversing that Celtic dominance. Lampard, my sense with Lampard is just he's kind of been thrown into a few jobs without real any prior experience. I mean, Gerard was working at Liverpool when Klopp was there. This tends to be the pattern. Mikel Arteta was the assistant to, to Guardiola. I mean, unless I'm missing something, Lampard kind of went from nowhere to doing an OK job at Derby. I think his first season at Chelsea, he did quite well, considering the lack of signings he brought through young players, kind of lost his way. But I'm just a little bit surprised that he's in this position on the back of two OK jobs. I mean, Everton's a big club. I know they're not they're kind of struggling the last couple of years, but... I just haven't really seen enough from from Lampard. And I do slightly fear for Everton this season, a club who basically stayed up on the back of Richarlison's goals towards the end of last back end of last season, haven't got Richarlison anymore. Mm. Um, so of the two at the moment, I, I definitely take Gerard. Although we have to see how he adjusts. I mean, I know his assistant there, Michael Beale, or Mick Beale, I think he prefers, is uh, is no longer there. And I think, you know, a lot of these young managers, they do rely on 
good coaches, good training ground coaches, um, and that can be underestimated. So um, I'm, I'm interested in this game. I think, uh, yeah, both seem quite under pressure mm. already at, mm. this, at this stage of the mm. season. Mm. Everton, the worst away record in the Premier League last season. Of course, they'll be away from home in this. Villa, though, equally the side that put in arguably the worst performance of the opening weekend, going down 2-0 against Bournemouth. I, mean, I am intrigued that you are impressed to some extent with what Steven Gerrard's done. As you say, ending Celtic's dominance. A lot of comment and a lot of unhappy Villa fans after last weekend's defeat talking about his form with Villa, the way that he hasn't responded to the issues there and also his team management, most notably in his clash with Tyrone Mings. It's been merciless with Mings. Um, might not work out. Yeah, I mean, I think some Villa fans, you know, there was that curious thing last season where all Villa's good performances seemed to be in quite big televised games. So everyone kind of assumed they were doing really well. But in the, you know, the run of the mill sort of Saturday 3pm games, they, they did play pretty badly on a number of occasions. And, you know, it's the whether Coutinho has fitted in, obviously started very well, but whether he fits into that team perfectly or, or takes away from other players a little bit is is yet to be seen. I mean... It's obviously a fixture massively elevated this weekend by the managers. Um, you know, this was a fixture that was in the first ever season of the Football League in 1888-89. It feels like it's all been leading up to Gerard V. Lampard, finally. <laughs> um, I quite hope that they go box to box in between each each of their managers' zones during the game. That'd be nice. Um, they uh, they only, have, only ever combined for one goal in their career, uh, England, which was against Moldova in September 2013. So um, there wasn't that much direct um, interplay between them as players. But, yeah, I mean, it's arguably going to be the biggest hug slash handshake of the season, isn't it? So I It's think... going to be fascinating to see the dynamic. Mm. Who who puts their arm around who, who holds on, maintains the grip longest. Yeah. Mm. But beyond that, bigger issues for these two teams and their future. There's a lot of pressure. Lampard, Gerard Kent. Is there room for only one of them in the Premier League? Hmm. Firstly, I'd agree that I think Gerard is the certainly shown over the last couple of years that he's got the better record. I did think Villa flattered to deceive a lot uh, at the back end of last season once he came in, and I think I completely understand why they signed Coutinho as a player of premium quality. But I always just wondered if that would stunt Buendia's growth as a player. And obviously, Buendia was I think they signed him for forty million pounds for Norwich. And there's just a few personnel decisions like that that Gerard's made, and obviously that kind of leads into the Mings kind of, maybe not saga, situation that's kind of going on at the moment that don't make complete sense. You know, Villa have only won two out of their last 12 Premier League games, but they've had some serious investment. You know, bought Diego Carlos from Sevilla. That's a Europa League, Champions League level quality player, but they're kind of scrabbling around in, in mid-table not doing that well. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, quite how far he gets into the season before, you know, Villa fans really start kind of like making a bit of noise. Well, yeah, quite a few of them are already on the grumble after last weekend's performance. Everton, meanwhile, also investing. Connor Cody and Amadou Anana announced this week. So, so a certain amount of reinforcement going on there. Big game then, Villa Park. That's uh, Saturday lunchtime. What else, though, should we be looking out for this weekend? Well, there is, as mentioned, the first Premier League game at the City Ground in Nottingham since May 1999. As Forest take on West Ham, anything in particular to build narrative around in this clash of a team that signed Jesse Lingard and one that saw 
themselves snubbed by Jay Lings. Yeah, I mean, I think the key thing is that West Ham really don't have any fit centre-backs. Um, I was at West Ham Manchester City last weekend, obviously all eyes on Erling Haaland, who scored twice. But, I mean, West Ham had four centre-backs out injured. Kurt Zuma was clearly injured himself from about 50 minutes in and was hobbling for the final 40 minutes. Of course, inevitably, Haaland ran into his uh, his zone and scored. Um, and I just think that is potentially a problem away at a side where the atmosphere is just going to be absolutely raucous there. And it's one of those games where I think Forrest will just have spells of pressure. Um, and I think, you, yeah, you don't want to be defending with two fullbacks against aerial balls. Not that uh, Forrest are particularly direct, but I just think they'll they'll put them under lots of pressure. Don't know the situation with Zuma. He might well recover. Um, but yeah, it didn't look promising from his second half display. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just on Jesse Lingard, with the proviso that it's one week's worth of data, but he did average 20 metres per carry um, last week, which was the longest, you know, the most of any player. Um, it does, given his, you know, snubbing of West Ham, it does uh, suggest the idea of him going on long dribbles with um, West Ham players, you know, trying to take him out, which would be quite nice to see. And just one more thing to add, this this transfer is not completed yet, although it sounds like it's it's well along the way. Uh, Forrest in for Remo Freuler of Atalanta, which would be, I mean, a wow. serious statement of intent. And one of those transfers where you just think this really, you know, underlines the financial power of the Premier League. I mean, that's one of the key players for, I'd say, probably the most exciting team and one of the best teams in Syria over the last few years, probably going to be going to a, a kind of newly promoted side. Um, reminds me a bit of Cardiff signing Gary Medell back in the way. Uh, back in the day. <laughs> His career went Boca, Sevilla, Cardiff, Inter, which was just <laughs> remarkable. Um, but yeah, that, that would be, I mean, I think he'd be their best player. Lingard has had flashes of form, but, but Freud is a really good player. Yeah. How long do you think, though, with that, that would take them to what, 14, 15 signings? Mm. How long do you think it's reasonable to wait before we see what Forrest can be? It's a fair question. I mean, I think there is an argument they I mean, they've signed so many players, but I think when you come up from the playoffs, realistically, they're only, what, the fourth best side in the league. I think you just do need the investment. You know, they weren't a great side before. They do need players of Premier League quality. But yeah, it is tough to, tough to uh, yeah, get them all on the same wavelength. And I think we'll see this problem for a few clubs because the transfer window's open for so much at the start of the season. Is it four? Four games? Five games. Five, Five games. For some, yeah. Which and yeah, normally it's like three, isn't it? So mm. it's quite a big proportion of the season where the squads are in flux. How long ago was it that the Premier League ended their transfer window before the start of the season for this very reason? But were rather three let down seasons, by the rest. Three, three seasons or four ago. seasons ago. But they, yeah. they expected the other leagues to do mm. it. The other leagues went, nah, you're right. So um yeah. I know that there's a and I completely get it that promoted teams kind of have to come up and spend big. But the point I was just going to make is that Brentford only made four signings when they got promoted um, via the playoffs last year. Mm. Um, one of them was a backup goalkeeper. And then out of the, the other three, so they signed Christopher Ayer from Celtic, Frank Onyeka from Michelin and Johan Visser from Lorient. Right. Only Ayer kind of really went into the starting eleven. But they also signed Ericsson, of course. Yeah, but that was January. Yeah, but... Were they not to have done that, I'm not sure if they would have su- survived. So I mean, Thomas Frank um, was asked about this last week and he said, his exact words were, anybody who thinks Brentford stayed in the Premier League 
because of Ericsson <laughs> right. is uh, is either single-minded or doesn't yep. know what they're talking about. If I'm very harsh, yeah. Mm. So, I mean, the the argument is obviously Fulham a few years ago came up, signed loads of players, went down. The last time they came up, they're like, we're not signing anyone, and yep. they went down. So, I I think I think for us to sign too many players. Okay, I do, I do as well. <laughs> I'd hear what you've got to say about that, Thomas Frank. Froiler, I'm hearing from producer Charlie, would be the 13th. Hashtag lucky for some, etc. All right, well, that game's taking place Sunday at 2 o'clock and there will be a terrific atmosphere at City Ground and it should be a lot of fun to watch, particularly if it does, as Michael suggests, feature one team playing with no centre-backs whatsoever. Very shortly, uh, oh, a bit of European news and then more of the weekend's highlights. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. We're sponsored for this episode of the Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. We're all driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Midweek in Helsinki, Real Madrid took home their fifth European Super Cup. They beat Eintracht Frankfurt 2-0. Hurrah. Meantime, also midweek, Champions League. Third qualifying round wrapped up on Tuesday. Is it the final qualifying round? No, it's not. There's a playoff coming, but Rangers will be in that playoff. 
after another magical European night at Ibrox in which they overturned their first leg 2-0 deficit against a Belgian outfit, Union Saint-Gilloise, winning 3-0 to advance to the final playoff round where they will face... Anybody? Ruud van Nistelrooy's PSV. Brilliant. Yeah. Last year's runners-up in the Netherlands beat Monaco 4-3. Wow. What a tie that looked like. Uh, that Sorry, that's on aggregate after extra time. Uh, and th- they'll be visiting Ibrox next week for the first leg of that. Crikey. Also, midweek, Ismail Assad, did you see his magnificent long-range strike for Watford against West Brom? That's a lovely touch by Assad, and he's spotted, but not for of inspiration from nowhere any statistical point you'd like to make about that Duncan <laughs> well it occurred to me that it's the highest league round in England and so that goal with its apex at whatever <laughs> might be the might be the highest goal bound ball we've ever seen so right. NFT it okay. <laughs> possibly not the most impressive goal scored midweek uh, amongst a variety of candidates I offer Costa Rica's captain Alexandria Pinel did you see her incredible free kick against Australia at the Women's Under-20 World Cup? Uh, you will shortly, because it, it's going pretty viral right now. She's about, I think, 35 yards out. I mean, an improbable distance, and absolutely lashes it. The ball is more or less still rising when it, when it finds the top corner of the net. Well, that is nice. I do like a, a ball still rising. Mm. And I must say, the thing that annoyed me about the saga was it bounced before the line. Mm. Oh, yeah. did it? Just, Always it takes just, the, the magic away. It did away. take a little bit of something away from it. Sorry, mm. great goal. Yeah. But, yeah, disappointed right. by the bounce. But then I love the fact that Button, kind of like in midair, kind of realises, yeah, I'm not getting this, am I? <laughs> kind, of, <laughs> kind of gives up that kind of moment of... Of horrible, horrible realization. I, d- I do love that. So it, it equals it out. Goals like this seem to happen with increasing frequency, particularly in in Irish football. Is this is this because <laughs> the evolution of the game, the modern defensive uh, setup, involves keepers? I'm not going to call them sweeper keepers, but coming out of their you know, coming upfield a, a lot more. Is that right? I think that's probably true. I think players are better at kicking the ball. Right. Yeah. I think balls, balls are mm. different. Yeah. And I think crucially, there's just cameras everywhere now. I mean, I know this was a championship game, but a lot of the halfway uh, goals we seem to see on Twitter are like, you know, Polish fourth division or something, which maybe it was happening every week in the 1990s, but mm. we just didn't see them. Well, I think the ball is the key thing. Like, if anyone who's kicked a modern football, they you can just loft it pretty easily and with you know get it quite far as one of those pumped up harder than science balls from the 80s and 90s it was you know just get out of the center circle and you're doing high fives when do you when was the turning point between the pumped up harder than science uh, balls and the modern football as you describe it probably mid 2000s right michael's okay. got a bit in one of his books on you but like the in the early premier league years there was no standardized balls there so there's different yeah. So different clubs had almost like a cricket pitch scenario where you're like, oh, we're aware of this team, they, their balls are, are quite difficult to hit. So they should bring that back. Definitely. Yeah, I, I mean, on the when balls changed, was it the end of mitre balls? 
Was yeah, that a, a significant moment? They just feel, maybe it's just my memory, but they feel like they were just more difficult to kick than the Nike balls. Mm. I mean, I think it is a big factor. We do laugh, I mean, we do laugh at major tournaments when goalkeepers complain about the new balls and stuff. But in 2010, that ball, I mean, that was a complete, if you actually played with one, mm. you just, maybe it's because I'm not very good, but you just couldn't control it when you passed it. It was mm. insanely bad. And it was no surprise that the team that won it was the team who kept the ball on the deck better than Right, yeah, Jabulani, of course, and uh, and Spain. What, what Do we know anything about what kind of football they're going to be bringing in for the World Cup when that gets underway sometime next week? <laughs> I, dread to, I dread to think. They can't organise a start date. One that's got yeah. the wrong date printed on it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Hey, the title two are in action, of course, this weekend. I'm referring to Man City and Liverpool City. We're taking on Bournemouth on Saturday. Liverpool have to wait until Monday to play Crystal Palace, by which point they could be five points behind. Uh, ooh, Man City-Bournemouth. Duncan is the most one-sided fixture in Premier League history. Do you have the numbers? Do you want the numbers? All ten have gone to Man City. In fact, Bournemouth only led for eight minutes in their 16 league meetings against uh, Man City. Wow. Um, what happened in those eight minutes? What what brought about those eight minutes? When was that? Children were born, people <laughs> sang. Uh, <laughs> well, Charlie Daniels gave them the lead in 2017 and then uh, Gabriel Jesus equalised. So that's not going to happen this time round. But, no. I mean, obviously Bournemouth have got some big men up front. Yeah, your key for Moors. So it could be big man v big man Classico, which, hmm. you know. Does feel like the Premier League is a bit taller this season, so does it? This could, yeah, like a lot of big teams doing big things. So, what's um, the combined height of Bournemouth's front two? <laughs> um, it's four beanstalks. I, yeah, uh, 12, 12 foot seven, which you know, I know Man City are big at the back. That's that's a that's a challenge. We were talking after their impressive win at the London Stadium, Michael which you were a witness to, about how impressive City looked with Haaland coming in to a team that had already won the title. Is there going to be any kind of title race this year? Benny's friend writes in and says, I honestly feel City will drop off, especially if Bernardo Silva does leave. They have a new system, new players, others have left, and whilst the quality there is incredible, I think the cracks from last season are still there, and if anything, made worse by this transfer window. Well, I guess two parts to this. One, is the Bernardo Silva to Barcelona move is it actually going through? And secondly, how much will that impact Man City? As we mentioned on Tuesday, that would leave them with a 19-man first-team squad, 19 men, and one of them is Scott Carson. What do you think? The um, First question, I don't know whether it's happening. I don't understand the situation at Barcelona, but um, we'll have to wait and see. And second, yeah, I think it would be a big blow. He was, I think he was pretty close to being the best player in the league last year, Bernardo Silva. And I think the good thing about him, or one of the good things about him, is he can play so many different roles. He mm. can play... You know, high between the lines, pretty much where Gundogan played uh, at West Ham. Or you can play really deep as kind of a controlling midfielder. So, yeah, I think that would be a big a big blow to City. And and just to go back to um, height, can I just say that the weekend before last, I went to Wimbledon against Gillingham and I saw the tallest player I've ever seen, who was six foot nine striker Kyle Hudlin. Hmm. Uh, it was an incredible sight, just... Just a very, very tall man. I bet huddling is what he has to do every time he gets on an airplane, for example. <laughs> don't don't go cuddling, Kyle Huddling. Yeah. 
Yeah, just on that man, Bernardo Silva thing. A Manchester City, the easiest team in the world to buy players from. It seems like <laughs> seems like a club just has to go. Can we buy Phil Foden? And they're like, yeah, forty million or something. You know, like so so many protracted transfers. Yet City seems to sort of just you know let. Play. I mean, it's probably quite admirable, really, but mm. it does seem unusual in in modern football. I mean, equally, my question about why would City let Bernardo Silva go so easily? I don't know if we can, can we give a response to that. Is it him pushing for the move? Is he just no longer part of Pep's plans? I remember Sam Lee kind of did a piece on this about a year ago to say that uh, Bernardo Silva had kind of just maybe grown a little bit tired of working under Pep Guardiola. Right. So then obviously they must have held kind of internal conversations because, you know, both just, I think Michael just said about Bernardo Silva being one of the best players in the league last year. And if you remember, he started the season mm. phenomenally. But clearly, it's just maybe a player who feels like he's kind of come to the end of end of his time at City and he's kind of felt that way before. And I know that Barcelona are... I certainly can't understand why any player would want to go to Barcelona in the current situation with what's going on there. It just seems too chaotic. But at the end of the day, it's still a famous club and, you know, you can kind of see why he'd want to, to kind of move over there and depart there. I mean, the, that's a really interesting point that Joe makes, actually, about players becoming tired under Guardiola because we have heard before that he's just so intense and so demanding every day in training that it can be quite exhausting and of course this is the longest he's ever been at a club he was three years at Bayern he was four years at Barcelona but in the final year it did feel like a lot of the players kind of switched off Mm. Um, look they're still winning the league almost every year so it's clearly not you know affecting Guardiola or affecting the club overall but maybe some individuals do do just feel yeah I want to go to a club where I get a bit more freedom Mm. Yeah, extraordinary scenes, though, as Jay also mentioned, in the Catalan capital with Frankie de Jong being abused by Barcelona fans on his way into training this week as the club increasingly project him as the the key man in their uh, efforts to actually register the players that they've collected from the rest of Europe ahead of their opening game of the season this weekend. They were... Um... They were booing Martin Braithwaite as well, which is no way to treat a man they signed outside of a transfer window for no particular reason. <laughs> Why were they booing him? Was it because he is he not accepting a wage reduction? Or yeah, he, he he's he's demanding that he be he be paid the thing that is owed to him by the club. Right. <laughs> which is what a strange him, what a strange request to make of somebody. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Just pay, wow. pay me what I'm owed. <laughs> they should get Mick Lynch down to Barcelona. <laughs> Ponto. <laughs> Sort that out for them. X, anyway, well, that's, that's Man City. So super impressive last weekend. A fixture against Bournemouth, which they have that extraordinary record in. Liverpool, meanwhile, hosting Crystal Palace on Monday night. Liverpool, who last weekend, by contrast, could only manage a 2-2 draw against Fulham. Just a blip? Or were there any worrying signs in there for you? Well, they didn't play very well. Um, I don't think the result was unfair. I mean, Fulham could have easily hold, held on. Um, and Palace are a difficult side to play against, I think. They, they gave Arsenal a bit of a fright in the second half last week. Um, but yeah, I'm just uh, I'm pleased this game is on Monday night, just because the most famous game between these two sides was on a Monday night, so it feels Ooh. right. Which game was that? The one where Liverpool... Uh, the, the week <laughs> after Gerrard slipped against Chelsea. Ah, Cristambul. Yeah. Right. Chris Tamble. Dwight Gale masterclass. Oh, were you thinking of the 9-0 was the most famous? Yeah. I wasn't yeah. sure. Yeah, recency bias. Or oh, the cup semi-final, perhaps. At Villa that, yeah, that is, that is true. I'm going to revise it. The most famous Premier League 
game between uh-huh. these two sides. And talking of the Premier League, Monday is exactly 30 years since the first ever Premier League wow. games. So maybe Brian Dean will score for one of the teams. It's unlikely. Man United, fun. if anyone, you'd say. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, what of Fulham, meanwhile, who looked so impressive against Liverpool last weekend? They, on Saturday, are going to be at Wolves. And, Michael, you might be too. We'll hear your thoughts about that and Saints-Leeds possibly in a maybe a mention of Brighton-Newcastle too next. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman, and I'm back with some good news. I'll be hosting the Athletic Football Podcast four times a week. I'll be joined by the likes of Adam Crafton, David Ornstein, Flo Lloyd-Hughes, Matt Slater and plenty more of The Athletic's brilliant journalists. And together we'll bring you the best insight into the biggest football stories. So that's every single week, Monday to Thursday. And if you like what we do, then please follow and subscribe to The Athletic Football Podcast in all the usual places. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Brian, Newcastle, everyone. Who's going to finish higher this season? Newcastle. Newcastle. Yeah, everyone's nodding at that. But is it the longest journey for a team in the Premier League fixture list this year? This well, season? Bournemouth would be... It's close between that and Bournemouth. I must say, I thought it was going to be Bournemouth. But when you look really? at Newcastle, it's it's more westerly... Well, compared it's, to Brighton and Bournemouth than you would expect. Yeah, it's the old thing, isn't it, that um, Bristol is further east than Edinburgh, which is mm. hard to cope with. But it's Further true. east? Yeah. Right. Interesting. And is it the distance well, between the two teams or is it the road network? Do you have to factor in what a, route? That is a good question. What we, what we do know is that when these two came up from the Championship, it was the most distance promotion to the top flight in English league history. So mm. we, we can be sure of that. All right. Producer Charlie's just been on to say that it is actually the furthest distance, uh, 350.9 miles between Newcastle and Brighton, which is a whole half a mile further than Bournemouth to Newcastle. Half a mile, but you'd feel that at the end of 350 miles, I think. Well, where do you calculate it from? Is it from the city it's or is it from, from the ground? State? Oh, from the training ground. Yeah, that's a, that's a factor. Uh, just while we ponder that, let me mention that Duncan, you were talking about Monday being the 30th anniversary of the first ball being kicked in the Premier League. I did a little piece with Alan Shearer about that. That chat, by the way, will be available on Monday, also in podcast form, in which he happened to mention that back in the day that one of the differences was Newcastle would have taken a coach down to that game. John Carver. And booked fish and chips for the way back. You know, they'd stop off, I think Weatherby was mentioned, for fish and chips. Uh, I imagine that the tune this time will be making their way down by air. Is that fair? Especially given the rail network disruption coming up on Saturday. Rail network disruption, which is going to prevent you, Michael, from attending Fulham's trip to Wolves. Yeah, I was due to go, but uh, the train strike is making things a little bit difficult. So, I see. Um, Tim Spears, who's been on this podcast a couple of times, who mm. uh, has just left the Wolves beat, after a few years to become right. a London reporter, is is uh, back in his old job, kind of like David Brent going back to the office with his uh, <laughs> with his dog. That's a nice comparison to make. Is he in the area then? Does he not have to make his way there from distance like you? I, I to be honest, I don't know, but I assume he's uh, 
I don't know. Mm. He knows Wolverhampton. I've never been to Wolverhampton. There's only two grounds I haven't been to, and this was going to be one of them, so I'm a little bit disappointed to, to miss it. Only two grounds out of, what, the Sorry, entire Sorry, out of the 20, not the 92, no. Were you okay. not uh, tempted to get a National Express coach? I was, and then I saw the temperature on uh, <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, It's going to be a hot one in so many senses at Molyneux. You been to Molyneux, Duncan? Uh-huh. Yeah, saw Jermaine McSporran score an outstanding goal in a League <laughs> Cup game there. <laughs> As you do. Where was he from? He's playing for Wickham. So. Right. No, no, I was wondering what nationality he was. He, well, he was born near Oxford, but I right. think he had Scottish um, grandparents. So he he was on the... I can't remember if he did play for Scotland. He was on the verge of the Scottish squad at one time. But he's one of the great names of uh, of English football history, I, I would say, or Scottish. Right. Jay, have you got any Molyneux memories? I have. I went to uh, watch Brentford beat Wolves 2-0 there last year, but one thing that sticks up from my mind is uh, David Rea changed his gloves in the second half to waste time, and you can imagine the response that got from the from the Molyneux faithful. Right. How long did he take changing his gloves? It doesn't feel like it would be that time I mean, I, f- I feel like keepers don't change their gloves that often, so I feel like even the very act was almost <laughs> like a... <laughs> was insulting itself. Um, I think he took a couple of minutes, to be fair, to kind oh, of, nice. to kind of send someone over for them to find it. Uh, it's quite funny for me personally, but less so the people sat directly next to me. In my mind, that would be possibly one of the more exciting things that happened at Wolves last season. It, it, <laughs> unfair, perhaps, but it didn't seem like the most dramatic of campaigns for Bruno Lage's side. This, as they take on a Fulham team who, as we mentioned, did impress against Liverpool last weekend will be with two Portuguese managers coming face to face, Bruno Lage and uh, Marco Silva, the 15th all Portuguese managerial clash in Premier League history. And remarkably, Silva has been involved in seven of the previous 14, but only won one of them. Oh, that was against Wolves, interestingly enough. Uh, right. Anyway, all of that information is absolutely essential. But I want to show some love for Fulham and particularly Mitrovic, who's got a, a big test ahead of him, a mixed weekend for him last time out. On one hand, he scored a brace against Liverpool. On the other, he got slammed by Sasha on this podcast for not being quick enough. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think about Mitrovic, who rammed critics' words down their throats with that brace last weekend? I think Mitrovic gets... <sighs> Everyone kind of beats Mitrovic over the head for what happened when Fulham were last came up a couple of years ago, 2021 season, when he didn't play particularly well. But everybody seems to get, when Fulham were promoted the time before that, which I think was 18-19, scored 11 goals and got three assists. And in a, in a team that's come up from the Championship, that's a pretty solid record. That's nothing to be sniffed at. But everyone kind of seems to forget and just remembers the kind of dismal Fulham performance from a couple of years ago. Um, but I would probably agree that he's not the certainly not the speediest player. But then that's not what he's in the team for. Mm. He's in the team for to kind of lead the line and do exactly what he did against Liverpool at the weekend. Yeah, and that's one of the more famed and feared defenses in the Premier League. Do you need to be fast? I mean, I did. I did see a funny, funny tweet that said Van Dijk fouled Mitrovic because he was expecting a it to be very much quicker, and so right. M- Mitrovic moves in slow motion which kind of caught Van Dijk off guard, which did make me laugh. Deceptively slow. Also, like footballers 
it's not like you're set in stone when you're 20 and that's how you you play and how good you are. Like you can develop throughout your career. And I think mm. last year, scoring over 40 goals in the second tier, the championships what in the top probably eight, nine leagues in the world in terms of quality. You don't become a bad player just because you've gone up to one division. I think, I think as Jay was saying, that the, his last season in the Premier League was wasn't representative of, of what he can do. And I think, I think he'll certainly get into double figures this season. Um, you know, could even get up towards high teens. Hmm. Yeah, I, I quite. I've always really liked Mitrovic, and there's always been this category of player that you know people say, particularly for strikers, they're too good for the Championship. They're not quite good enough for the Premier League. Mitrovic is too glamorous for that. You know, he's mm. got he's a good player. He's got 46 international goals. I can't have him as the poster boy for that movement. It's still Cameron Jerome for me. Yeah. <laughs> is Mitrovic going to score more than Jamie Vardy this season? Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. He is? Yeah. How many? Oh, you say high teens. All right. What about Fulham beyond that? How, how much, how excited were you by, by what Marco Silva's putting together there at Craven Cottage? I mean, they're a very different side in, in terms of style from the, the Scott Parker side that came up. And I think Parker actually did an all right job with that squad. But they were very negative. They were cagey. They played five at the back usually. They wanted to play on the counter-attack, which certainly didn't suit Mitrovic. Um, so I'm I'm a bit more positive about them this time around. I think the, there's just a, a good vibe there. And I think as well, I mean, I know it was the same for every team, but that season before they were up, the whole season was behind closed doors. And I think for a newly promoted team, mm. you know, the atmosphere, the feel around the club is really important. We saw that with Brentford with their first game against Arsenal. Would they have won that in that style behind closed doors? I don't know whether they would have. And I think we'll maybe see something similar for Forest this weekend. I'm also quite intrigued that it seems like Marco Silva is actually going to trust a few of the players that got Fulham promoted, whereas in the past they've kind of been sidelined. So Tim Ream and, and Niskins Cabano both both started against Liverpool. And in the past, they've kind of been those players that have got Fulham promoted and then Fulham go on this massive spending spree, buy a new plump uh, centre-back, buy a new flashy winger, and it doesn't work. So I actually quite like the fact that they seem to be a little bit more together and they're kind of giving those players a chance because that, that, that's massive for, for squad morale and things like that. We can't, we can't underestimate that. Is there a fixture that we haven't talked about so far? You're right, there is. Saints against Leeds. Saints have won just one of their last 13 Premier League matches. Crikey. Well, I look forward to seeing what happens when those two teams get it on Saturday at 3 o'clock. Monday, of course, we'll be back to review all of the Premier League action and look ahead to loads of stuff midweek in Europe. In the meantime, Duncan, what are you going to be up to? I'll be working this weekend, so just, yeah, looking forward to some... Some of the games we talked about, I, mean, I think there's some some really big potential narrative storylines that are going to emerge. Anything Obviously, we didn't actually, mention? Do we, do well, we? Remember two seasons ago, and it was as Michael just mentioned the the behind closed door season. But the match day two was that mad weekend where there were like 44 goals and, <gasps> and loads of red cards. So um, more of that would be good. Yeah, for sure. Jay, what are you cooking up for us? Well, a few of us have actually been working on a, a piece, kind of detailing um, how kind of Christian Eriksen left Brentford and how he ended up at Man United and then just kind of pulling it back and taking a wider look at his story since obviously that that horrific collapse at, at Euro 2020 just over a year ago. It is a remarkable story really how he's gone from that horrible incident to, to playing for Manchester United. So mm. I think that'll be out Saturday morning. Yeah, and we didn't really talk about how he played in admittedly only one league game so far, but 
on a disappointing day for United, he was. I mean, he was certainly, I think, their, be- their best chance creator, wasn't he? Against Brighton. Hmm. So positive signs there. And Michael, I'm going to be focusing on uh, Chelsea against Tottenham. I think uh, writing analysis for that. And uh, yeah, while I'm here, worth saying that on the Athletic, there's loads of good analysis this season. We've got a couple of extra people doing tactic stuff. A guy called Liam Tham, a guy called Ahmed Walid. Uh, so yeah, there's loads of good analysis on the Athletic if you like that kind of thing. Right, and even if you don't, at one pound a month for the next six months, <laughs> <laughs> it's worth getting in. Can I also briefly point out that uh, if you like live shows, me and Duncan are in Dublin on Monday. What? With, uh, Gavin Cooney and Ken Early. Not you, I'm sure, James. No, but, I'm uh, not there. What the? If you're in Dublin on Monday and want to come down, please do. On that bombshell, we come to the end of... Uh, what theatre are you going to be at, Michael? It's Liberty Hall. Oh, yeah, I know the Liberty. Small venue. <laughs> <laughs> Cavernous. It's like the, they call it the Irish American R. <laughs> do, do they now? Excellent. All right, well, listen, best of luck with that. Do get along. I had the pleasure of seeing Michael and Duncan in action live on Tuesday, and it's not something to be missed. Uh, Excellent. Same goes for Monday's Totally Football Show with all the sharpest of takes on round two of the season, so do join us for that. Many thanks to Duncan, Michael, and to Jay, and to producer Charlie, who's now a bit better. Thank you very much, listener. And to you as well for giving us your ears for the last hour. We'll catch up with you after the weekend. Have a great one. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.